going to try to get straight into questions. Uh, if you have not texted your question, go ahead and text it. And we have a ton coming in. Most are using words I've never heard of before. So I'm going to try uh, my best to pronounce these and to get to these. Um, all right, let's see. Let's, let's think about starting here. And, and I love it. Your questions are very, very specific. Continue to be this specific. And we'll try to get through as many of these questions sure, as possible. Sure, sure. If the sun is going to blow up, is that when God, or is that when Jesus is going to return? He, well, <clears throat> he will, <clears throat> excuse me, he will return long before then. We probably have 100 to 1,500 years left of the sun at its current optimum level. Um, after that, it's going to be less optimum for life. Until the last 10,000 years, 99% of human beings farmed because the weather was so sporadic. The last 10,000 years, um, now we are able to live off the farming of 1%. So we probably have 100 to 1,500 years of a good sun left. Um, but I think that culture itself will probably outpace the problem with the sun. Uh, he's going to come back way before it burns out. Whoa, that's awesome. Okay, didn't know that, kids. Get ready. All right. Question number two is, um, you know, someone, someone wrote in, we know that God created planet Earth and everything that is on it, but it seems like, and I'm assuming maybe from their classroom discussions or yeah. people they're talking about, people they're talking to, uh, why does it seem that science tells us different? So maybe this is from things they're reading or <laughs> teachers are interacting with. Why is it so hard maybe to, to point back so clearly sure. to God being the author and creator? <clears throat> one, one problem, it's called methodological naturalism. You can write that down. This is the method of scientists and they believe that every investigation they do is limited to only naturalistic explanations well if you're starting from that starting point if you're starting with the assumption that there is no God you've thrown out a, a whole range of possible explanations and so if it looks like science is in conflict with theology that's because science denies theology as a possible variable explanation for what we see, even though science was founded from theology. It was originally designed to explain uh, God's expression through nature. And then that gradually got lost. The nail was put into the coffin of natural theology and it turned into science during the Darwinian era. But let me tell you something, Dar Darwinian thought and Neo-Darwinian thought is in serious trouble, serious trouble. It cannot explain uh, many of the observations we're making now. Oh, that's awesome. Um, someone writes in, is the creation story, so I'm assuming they're pulling from Genesis 1 and 2, mm -hmm. is the creation story literal or symbolic? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Was the earth actually made in seven days? Yes, but define days, right? So there, there's a misnomer, and I really want to clear it up tonight. Uh, first of all, there are good young earth creation scientists. They are brothers in the Lord. There are good old earth creation scientists. They are brothers in the Lord. It is not a salvation issue, but it's an important issue. Now, that being said, the misunderstanding is that a literal interpretation of Genesis 1 means seven 24-hour days. That's one literal interpretation. Another literal interpretation is seven eras or eons of time because the Hebrew word yom can mean 12-hour day, 24-hour day, light, time, or long extended period of time. It has all those meanings. The reason is in the Hebrew, 
Old Testament, there are like 3,300 possible words to choose from. Now compare that to over a million words in English, you see the problem with translations. You get a word like yom, um, it was evening and morning, the first yom, right? That's a way of bracketing that time. Now very interesting, the seventh day does not close. It said God rested from all his works on the seventh day. It does not say there was evening and morning the seventh day. It doesn't close. So a literal interpretation says we are still in the seventh day of creation because God rested from creation. He's not creating anymore. He's still working, but he's not doing works of creation. So yes, the Bible is literal. In fact, Genesis 2 describes four features of primordial earth, makes a prediction that it's all water without form, that it has no life, void, that it's dark, right? Uh, darkness covered the face of the deep. That's water. There was no land. There was no land. There was an unevenness due to underwater volcanic eruptions. Pitch black on the surface of the earth and no life. And that's exactly what scientists say primordial earth was like. Exactly the four conditions Genesis 1-2 describes. That's exactly what matches science exactly. Okay, so we're get, we got a question in that maybe, maybe this is coming from somebody who, would, uh, who isn't fully buying everything that you're selling at this point and, and wants sure. to Good. offer that. And again, we want to say to those of you that maybe don't agree with this, we're so glad you're here. Yes. We appreciate it. Yes. And I, I love the verse that David read in the beginning about gentleness and respect yeah. and how we, how we operate about this. So here's the question. It's says, if there are no such thing as transitional species, yeah. why would the fossil record prove otherwise? The second part of this question is, do vestigial, I hope I'm saying that right, vestigial, yeah. vestigial, do vestigial organs conflict with the theories that you have presented? Okay, first of all, you have to define transitional species. Now, when we look at the evolution of the horse, those are transitional forms, but it's within a species. Now, if you're talking about transitional species, meaning uh, transitioning from one form of life to another, those do not exist. Now, what I mean by that is this. There are 15 extinct hominids. I hate when Christians bring up the Piltdown hoax, uh, the Piltdown forgery, and say, oh, there's really no extinct hominids in our historical record. No, there are. We need to deal with them. But here's what is meant by the reality that there are 15 extinct hominids. It means there are 15 extinct hominids. That's what it means. We've done DNA studies. We've done uh, what are called molecular anthropological studies. We've also done archaeological studies and there is no connection, there's no evolutionary pathway between extinct hominids and human beings. So when you hear people talking about transitional species, you've got to remember there's not enough time for, say, the, the theory is the whale came from a wolf. So life emerged from the water, turned into a wolf, decided to go back into the water and became the whale, right? And it's because there are some shared common features. But just as reasonable as common descent, that is, they have these similar features because they have a common ancestor, is common design. A common designer is going to repeat 
his design throughout organisms. Mammals have certain body structures, amphibians certain body structures, reptiles, certain things in common because there's a common designer to them. That's what we would biblically predict. So when you talk about transitional species, um, that's different from transitional forms, which are changes within a species. There are not transitional species. Lucy, um, I don't want to go on too long, but Lucy was an Australopithecus form of hominid found in Ethiopia in the early 1970s. Now, everybody got all excited because at first they thought, oh, finally, there's this transition between knuckle walkers and model runways, bipedalism, right? But as they began to find more of Lucy and piece Lucy together, they discovered Lucy was a fully bipedal hominid, the only other one other than human beings. For some reason, Lucy went extinct. She is not a transitional species because there's nothing between knuckle walkers and fully bipedal. Lucy was fully bipedal and the bubble was burst 20 years after she was discovered. Holy cow. Okay. Um, this is amazing. We're going to record this. So if you want to watch it in slow-mo, maybe we'll be able to take <laughs> right. in more of what Dr. Mark is saying. Um, all right. Here's a question. If the earth is the only planet where life is available, why are there other planets, stars, and galaxies? Why do those exist? Yes. Great question. Remember, the entire universe is designed with all of these uh, physical constants. Everything is designed for this special Imago Dei, that's you and me, this Imago Dei life here on Earth. It was a necessary part of the geological and cosmological development of the universe to allow this one galaxy out of billions of galaxies and this one planet located in the Goldilocks zone of this galaxy. Everything else was an outgrowth of all of those necessary factors playing out. And they're there for God's glory. Remember, the beauty of space, that's enough. God wants us studying. He wants us seeing his thumbprint, his handiwork, his artistry. And so all of these stars at different stages, different sizes, all of these different planets, he wants us looking at them and discovering and learning more and more because as we learn more and more, we find more physical constants that are necessary for life here on earth pointing to the necessity of a designer behind those constants. That's awesome. That's awesome. Can you uh, quickly uh, walk us through what is the difference between macroevolution and microevolution? Yes. And yeah. uh, is one of those as followers of Christ and as people who read the Bible, it, are, is, one prefer, is one okay to believe? Is one not okay to believe? Yes. What are your thoughts? Yeah, microevolution, that's just change within a species. This is what Darwin witnessed. He went to the Galapagos Islands. He found these different finch species, 13 different species he found. He took nine back with him uh, to England. Okay, now what he observed was on drought-ridden islands, the beaks were larger and stronger. And on the islands, uh, such as Isabella Island, where the rains were plentiful, they were more diverse and you had a lot of small, softer beaked uh, finches. And of course, he rightly, he rightly concluded that the seeds, which are the primary source of food for finches, they were soft in the rainy areas, and so the small beak finches could access the nutrients inside. But they couldn't access them on the drier islands, and so they died out. But something amazing we have observed in the last century, 
even though there seems to be like this average growth of 5%, you okay? Is he okay? Somebody might be dying. I'm not sure. Oh, it's... Oh, okay. Hi, Kamari. You, you, okay, you can breathe, right? You're good. <laughs> good eyes. Can, I can, is, is there a I leader that could go Heimlich help him? Tilt. All right. So, All right. in other words, he witnessed finches changing their beak sizes, but these finch beak sizes already existed, just the population distribution. There were more large beak in the drought-ridden areas and more small beaks in the rain-drenched areas. But when the rains returned to the drought-ridden areas, the ordinary distribution of small beak to large beak returns. And that's what we've noticed. And the change is only an average of 5% growth. Now, it's not growing 5%. You're averaging the beaks. So you have large beaks and small beaks. And as you average them, the average goes up 5% in a drought-ridden region, but it goes back to the pre-drought conditions when the rains return, meaning the genetic coding is already in there. That's microevolution. Dog breeding is microevolution. You're removing parts of the wolf's DNA. Probably the husky was one of the uh, earliest dog breeders. Uh, the Greeks and Romans did this because they looked very much like the wolf, but you know what they removed out of them. They removed the wildness and the fierceness out of them. Huskies are, are very loyal, yet very approachable dogs. They look like wolves, but they don't have that wildness. That's been bred out of them. But it's still a dog. It's still a wolf. And so you see a chihuahua next to a Great Dane. You don't go, oh, look, a rat and a horse, right? You see the dogness, even in a chihuahua, even in a Great Dane. You're thinking, is that a rat and a horse? No, those are both dogs, just like those, those horses up there. You didn't say, oh, a dog that looks like a horse and a horse that looks like a horse. You recognize the horseness. That's microevolution. Macro is changing uh, from a cat to a giraffe, and there's no evidence for that. Okay, good. Um, for every question we're answering, we're getting about 10 in. So awesome. we're going to continue to try to power. We just yes, for a few till more dawn we go. We skip school tomorrow. Yeah, I, now we're talking. I'm calling um, in. I won't be there to lecture my class. You'll explain that to all the parents, right? You'll yes. go to all the parents. All right. So quickly, quickly. It's, it's for God. <laughs> quickly, yeah. and if you could, um, as clearly as you can, what is the what is the fallacy? What is the error in believing the Big Bang? Well, actually, the Big Bang is not an error. The Big Bang was was a term Fred Hoyle made up to mock the idea that the universe had a beginning. Most people think um, that the Big Bang is anti-Christian. It was made up by Fred Hoyle saying, oh, that Big Bang. He wanted to believe the universe had always existed. You have to if you're an atheist, right? If, if you believe the universe once was not and then became something, that's the Kalam cosmological argument, which goes like this. Everything that has a beginning has a cause. The universe had a beginning. The universe has a cause. That's the causal agent we know as the God of the Bible. So Fred Hoyle made up this term Big Bang to mock the idea that there was a beginning to the universe, but it stuck. The Big Bang is a friend of Christians because the Big Bang means there is a big banger. Wow. All right. If the whole universe, if the whole universe has the property of irreversible entropy, how were the resurrections of Jesus and Lazarus possible? Miracles. That's it. You know what's really cool about the creation? It is a miracle. 
So from the very start, what do we prove is possible? From the very beginning, what do we prove is possible? Miracles. Exactly. Because everything started with a miracle. Everything was created out of nothing by an external causal agent, which we know is the God of the Bible. That makes miracles possible. So miracles are real. They are God intervening and overriding. He's not denying his physical laws. He's overriding the physical laws. Yes, natural entropy is that Jesus' body would rot and die. The rabbinical tradition back then was official rotting began at four days. Right? So consequently, before official rotting began, because that would have been distasteful to many of the Jews of the day, he resurrects on the third day. Plus, there's all kinds of theological implications to three. But Jesus resurrecting does go against entropy. That's the whole point. The whole point is it's a miracle. It's awesome. It's awesome. Um, do you believe that cavemen were real? Why or why not? Uh, yes. But all cavemen are, are men who probably uh, lived in caves. <laughs> right? So remember, until the last 10,000 years, now we're saying that Adam and Eve were anywhere from 50 to 100,000 years ago. Uh, we've we've uh, isolated that they are real. There is a real mother, a real father to the human race. And they're isolated back uh, to the Garden of Eden area. Um, and remember, until 10,000 years ago, everybody was farming 13 to 20 crops because they didn't know what the weather was going to do. And so they just hoped two or three crops would survive and they'd get through uh, the winters. They didn't know how long winter was going to last. The weather was very unstable. Only recently have we known the stable climate that we have now so that the population can grow rapidly and prepare for the reception of the gospel. And so cavemen were just uh, people who were primarily agrarians. They were focused on farming food for their families and, and small communities that they had. That was the full-time job, was eating, right? Now 1% feeds the, the whole world. Oh. All right, Dr. Mark, we're going to ask two more questions. Um, and then uh, if you're after this, if you're like, especially, I would say especially if you're in this room and man, this whole idea of believing in a creator God is just like, you're frustrated with it. And maybe you would call yourself an atheist or an agnostic or a naturalist. Um, Dr. Mark is going to be up here for a few more minutes. And I would sure. love to invite you, especially if you would identify yourself as like a skeptic, you don't believe any of this stuff. Um, would you come forward? Because I know Dr. Mark would love to continue that conversation, but we only have time for these two more sure. questions. And the first one would be this. Um, if someone is interested in continuing to learn more about um, creationism and, and science uh, at the level that you're talking about. Do you have some books or some articles or some ideas, sure. places to go that you would recommend? Sure, sure. Um, for uh, the design factor of life, uh, that is molecular biology, cell biology, uh, um, genetic biology, probably the Discovery Institute does a great job I uh, spent 10 days up there with them two summers ago, um, and um, we gather. They gather uh, every summer for 10 days to go over papers and find evidence of an intelligent designer. And so I had the privilege of doing that with them. And so if you just look up Discovery Institute, Google it, you'll get on their website. They have great resources uh, proving intelligent design. Now, they don't take 
a biblical prediction position like, like what I did here. Their, main, their only goal is to bring in that, that there's a causal agent behind the design systems of life. And so they're not, uh, they are Christians, but that's not their main thing. Uh, and then as far as cosmology, I think y'all had Dr. Hugh Ross speak. Dr. Hugh and I are good friends. Um, reasons to believe is probably the best source for that. Although he has a lot of good biological resources, a very fine biochemist, Fuzz, uh, Dr. Rinaldi, um, uh is his biochemist. He also has A.J. Roberts on staff, virologist. Uh, he has a theologian on staff. So that's a good source for cosmology. Uh, so if you're interested in cosmology, reasons to believe, just Google it, take you to their website. If you're interested in biology, Discovery Institute, and that'll, that'll take you from there. And, th and from there, they'll, they'll take you other places. And they have a lot of books and DVDs mm. and resources. Yeah, and as well, check out those resources. If you want to text this number, too, uh, we've got some different books that we've used that we've recommended to students to read, too, that are really uh, user-friendly. So text us and let us know, and we can send you those links. Um, here's the last question, and this is just an easy softball one. It goes like this. You've made it sound very likely that someone out there made the universe. But how do we know that it was the Christian God that did yeah, it yeah. and not some other religion or being that we're not worshiping? Yeah. Okay. First of all, um, if it's more than one God, we're not going to see the consistency in the order throughout the universe. If you had like 10 gods creating, then if just one factor is off, the whole universe is going to be out of whack. So the consistency that we see in universal creation, the consistency we see in common design factors of life, in the genetic information of life, um, five to eight percent of your DNA matches viral DNA. Now, some people think, oh, that shows that viruses infected our germ cells at one time. Others say, no, that just simply shows a common designer. So the, the consistency and the unity of common design factors shows there's one God. Now, you look at the two monotheistic religions. You look at the Muslim religion and you look at the Judeo-Christian religion. Now you look at the predictions of the Judeo-Christian religion cosmologically that are not made in, in the Islamic faith. And you see that those pan out to be true. Plus... If you've ever loved anybody, that also points to the God of the Bible. Because only the God of the Bible is Trinitarian. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They're in perfect relationship with each other. The Bible says you are made imago dei, in the image of God. We are naturally relational beings. Because we carry that relational aspect of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in perfect relationship. So someone asked Jesus, who should, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And he held up a coin. He said, who's, who's, whose face is on this coin? Is it Caesar's? So he said, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. Render unto God that which is God's. And so Caesar's, Caesar's image was on the coin. You are imago dei, the image of God is supposed to be on you. So when people look at you, do they see Caesar or do they see the image of God? Finally, how do I know Christianity is true? 
I have decided it makes sense to follow the guy who came back to life from the dead. Just makes more sense. Buddha has some cool things to say, but he has worms crawling out of his eye sockets. Confucius has cool things to say. Same thing. There were cool things in some of the religions, but only one claimed to be God incarnate. That was Jesus himself. That's why he was crucified, for the blasphemy of equating himself with God. And he came back to life from the dead. That is historically provable. That's a whole other evening, right? Christianity is a faith, but it's not a blind faith. My faith is that he paid for my sins on the cross. I don't have blind faith that he resurrected. That's historically demonstrated and proven. Where my faith is, is that he died on the cross for my sins. But I trust him. He didn't lie to me. He's either a lunatic or a liar or he's God incarnate. I don't think he's a liar or a lunatic. I think he's God incarnate. I think he proved that by coming to life from the dead. And that's why I know this causal agent is the God of the Bible because my Lord and Savior says it is. Wow. Can you guys give a huge round of applause to Dr. Mark? Um, that was awesome. Two things. Two things, uh, and then I'm going to have David come up and pray out our evening. Two things of this. Number one, number one, if you are brand new, if you're brand new tonight, maybe you're just checking HSM out, you haven't said hi to us, I would love to say hi to you. And so I'm going to be right up here on this side. If you are new to HSM, please come say hi. I'm our high school pastor, and I would love to just greet you. We actually have a gift for you that I'd love to give you uh, and just share with you a little about our high school ministry because we'd love to see you back here. Um, second group of people, if, if there was something that Dr. Mark said that you want more clarification on, especially if you're in this room and you're skeptical and you're unsure, or maybe the wheels are turning, you're going, maybe there is a God. And I didn't think there was, but maybe there is. Dr. Mark will be standing over to that corner and he would love to talk with you. So if you're brand new, would you please bless me by just coming up and saying hi? I'd love to just give you a gift and hang out with you and just get to know you for a quick second. Uh, if you have questions and you want to continue the conversation with Dr. Mark, he's going to be over there. Let me invite David up one last time. Let's give it up for David. Um, I'm so proud of you, David. I'm so proud of you. Let me just ask you a question. Are you glad that God put this idea on David's mind and heart? Are you guys glad about that? Me too. Me too. I think tonight, I think tonight had a significant impact on all of us. And so, uh, David, thanks so much for following God's leading in your life. And thanks for being a leader. Um, would you go ahead and just pray out our evening and then, uh, we'll be done. Cool. Lord God, I just thank you so much for this amazing opportunity that we have Dr. Mark here to just speak to us and just that we're, we have the freedom to just ask these questions and not be prosecuted, not be judged, that we had the freedom to just ask and learn. And that's an opportunity that not many people have. And I just really appreciate that, that we had the opportunity to do that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen, amen. Thank you. Again, new students, come up and talk to me. If you want to continue the conversation, Dr. Mark would love to talk with you. Otherwise, we'll see you guys Sunday and next Wednesday. We love you.
Your king. 